You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach all the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity not laying against the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrections of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. This is the word of God. We believe it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your word. We thank you for the opportunity now that we have to be taught by you. And so we pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would, in fact, work through this teaching Uh, that you would arrest our attention, that you would soften our hearts to receive everything that you have for us today. And it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there's three types of fear that I'm familiar with. There is a fun fear, there is a, uh, a bad fear, and there is a healthy fear. There's a fun fear. Think like roller coasters or haunted houses or scary movies or my personal favorite, like jumping out at people when they least expect it. Um, I remember uh, the first uh, year I was ever on staff at a church, I uh, was asked to meet early one morning before the rest of the staff came in with the lead pastor. We were about to go into a funeral somewhere, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to get there a little bit earlier than he told me, sneak into his office, get underneath his desk, wait for him to come and sit down, and then jump out at him. I thought, you know, that would be a lot of fun, and so I come in. I sit underneath his desk, and I'm just waiting, and eventually he comes, and he sits down, and when he sits down, I hear him say, Wayne, what can I do for you today? Which indicates uh, that he was not alone, like I thought he was going to be, and so apparently there was a counseling session, and I thought in that moment, okay, there's one or two things I can do. I can either just stand right up and say, hey, whoa, 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 before you get in your counseling session, sorry, I was being immature, trying to jump out and hide, you know, all that kind of thing, so I'll go ahead and leave now, or I can just sit there and hope that I don't get noticed. So I decided to do that. Seemed like a logical thing. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and, and, and my face is, it's right in his, um, in, in his knees. And, 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 and I'm just like trying not to move. I'm trying not to like, you know, make any noise. I'm just like, please God, don't let him see me. Please don't let him see me. And so probably five minutes into his conversation, he says, Wayne, uh, who by the way was the chairman of our deacons at the time, he said, Wayne, uh, let me grab something real fast. And I don't know what he was going to grab, but he bends down. And when he does, he sees me underneath the desk, jumps back in fear, grabs his heart and says, what are you doing there? And, uh, and just imagine this is a desk, right? So you, you're Wayne, like you can't see. And so just imagine this is all that you see. <laughs> you know, it's like five minutes into this. I've only been hired, you know, young guy. And I was just like, Wayne, good to see you. And I just walked on out. Like we never even talked about it again. It was, it was really bizarre. Right. But, but that's the fun kind of fear. Then there's the bad fear, right? There's the fear that paralyzes us. There's the fear, whereas in the words of Seth Golden, we experience failure in advance. We think about the worst case scenarios. This is what Jesus refers to as anxiety or worry, which he warns us against in the Sermon on the Mount. That's a bad fear. But then there is a healthy fear. 
There is a good fear, and if you are a parent, like you know, this is the kind of fear you often want to instill in your kids. So if they're young, especially, you want them to have a fear of running out in the street. Uh, you don't want them playing in traffic, right? You want them to have a fear of putting their hand on a hot stove. Like, like you want them to have a fear of only eating junk food. Um, you know, my, my son Moses, all he ever wants to eat is, is like bread and sugar. That's pretty much it. And so, like, I'm just, you know, I've been trying this thing where for several years now, if he's been eating too much, like yesterday, like donuts and cake and ice cream and all this, these, these parties he went to, eventually I'll look at him and I'll be like, son, you cannot eat anymore. And he'll be like, why? And it's like, son, because I don't want you to get, like, needles stuck in your belly from having diabetes or something. By the way, the first room was, literally, it was packed out and everyone looked at me exactly the way you are right now. So I probably should have learned my lesson and not shared that story in this service as well. So, I promise you I love my kid, but... That is a form of healthy fear, right? Like, and it is true, by the way. If you eat a bunch of sugar, like, you can get diabetes. I'm not making that up. So, some of you are like, am I? That's true, right? Yeah, it's true. Okay, all right. Just making sure. Okay, uh, we can debate that later. And so, but there's a healthy kind of fear. It's a fear that you want to instill in others, or we need to have instilled in us, not for the purpose of harming us, but for the purpose of helping us. And listen, the whole reason that I share that is, is, please hear this. The text we are coming to today is a very scary text. And it is here to instill in you a healthy fear. And it's not meant to be a fear that paralyzes you. It's a fear that is meant to protect you. It's a fear that's to help us live lives that are happy and whole. And so with that in mind, look back with me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 The preacher says, we have much to say about this. And by this, he means he's just finished talking about Jesus as the great high priest and how he's like Melchizedek. And I'm not going to get into that right now because we'll talk about it more in the weeks to come. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear because you have no longer tried to understand. And so what he's saying here is, look, there's a lot more I would love to teach you, church. I would love to take you into deeper waters. I would love to be able to move beyond a lot of this stuff that I keep talking about every single week. I would like for you to experience a deeper and more fulfilling relationship with Jesus, but I cannot go any further because you've stopped trying to understand. One translation says, you have become dull of hearing. You stop paying attention. Remember, Hebrews, by the way, it's not just like a guy sat down and wrote a letter. This is a sermon that is being preached to a church. And so I imagine he's sitting in front of his church and, 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 and he's noticing that some people are beginning to doze off. He's noticing that some people are beginning to close their eyes, right? And so like he can probably feel my pain. I understand what he's going through here. And so basically he's looking, he's saying, wake up, like open your eyes, like, like pay attention, try to understand what I am saying. However, because they are not doing this, he goes on and he says in verse 12, by this time, you ought to be teachers, But you still need someone to teach you the elementary truths from God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. He says, look, when it comes to the Christian life, there should be a progression. Like, you should grow. You should become more and more like Jesus. Like, when you become a Christian, you are a spiritual infant. But just as you see, like, a physical progression through life, there should be a spiritual progression. You should go from being an infant to a child to an adolescent to eventually an adult. You should go from having to be fed to being able to feed yourself and then feeding others, teaching others. He says you should grow. You should mature. And guys, the same should be true for you and me. Like, if you are a true Christian, like, you should be increasingly becoming more like Christ. And now I want to be clear, like, like this doesn't happen overnight. 
It happens over time. Like growth is actually slow. Growth is a lot more like a crawl than it is a superhighway, but it is, in fact, sure. We should be moving forward, progressing, and that's what he says right here to these people. He says you should be growing, you should be mature, you should be teaching others. However, notice, something has gone terribly wrong. He says you should be eating a ribeye, and instead you're still drinking from a bottle. Like like you're still on milk when you should be on meat. You know, I ran into Randy Rogers yesterday, and he was here in the second service, so I thought about this. Uh, Randy was all excited when he saw me and Megan yesterday, and he was pumped because he was going to eat a steak at the Laredo Grill. Anybody in here ever been to the Laredo Grill before? Hey, a few of you, he was excited about the Laredo Grill. Apparently, according to Randy, it's five-star dining. So, and, and I'm getting some nods, so apparently fantastic. So he goes back there, and he, you know, crushes a ribeye. He told me today it was amazing. That makes sense, right? Like Randy Rogers eating a ribeye. But imagine Randy Rogers or any grown man sitting here in a service today and just like nursing a bottle. Can you get that image in your mind? Some of you are like, I don't want to get that image in my mind, right? And it's because it's weird. Like if you saw that happen, you would probably like want to call the cops. You'd be like, something is wrong. This man is a danger to society. And what the preacher is just trying to get at here is, listen, as crazy as that image is, this is the way he says it is for some of you spiritually. He says, for some of you, look, you've been showing up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You're involved in community. Like, you've been doing this whole Jesus thing for a while. And he says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. And that doesn't mean that you should eventually come to a place where you stand on stage like I'm doing. But you should at least be able to explain the gospel. You should at least be able to, to point your kids to the scriptures, to use the Bible, to navigate life. But instead, he says, I'm still having to teach you the basics. In verse 13, he says, anyone who lives on milk... Being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. See what he's saying here, it's so important that we get this today. He, he's saying, look, a mature Christian is not just someone who knows the Bible. And I want you to hear that this morning. Like some of us think that information equals transformation. That if I could just get another Bible study, if I could just get another podcast, if I could just spend more time studying this, this book of the Bible or whatever it may be or listen to another sermon, that then I would be mature. That's not what he's saying here. A mature Christian is not just someone who knows the Bible. A mature Christian is someone who is applying the Bible. A mature Christian is someone who in the words of James is not just a hearer of the word, but they are a doer of the word. They take the scriptures in. They apply them to their lives. The teacher says here, quote, they train themselves with the Bible to discern what is good from evil, right, from wrong, so that rather than drifting into destruction, which he's already warned us about, they are learning how to make good decisions that keep them on the narrow path that in the end allow them to experience the abundant life. And that is what this is all about today. Jesus says, I've come so you may have life and have it abundantly. And the preacher says, I want you to, to experience abundant life, to grow, to mature, to experience life as God created. Therefore, look at this, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you forget the elementary teachings of Christ. He's just saying, let's, let's move beyond it. Let's build off of it. And let's be taken forward to maturity and then here's the elementary teachings he's referring to. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites. It's talking about baptism. And the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. To the preacher, he, he says, look, I'm really worried about some of you. 
because you're still struggling with some of this found, fundamental stuff. Like, like the first two things he says is faith and repentance. Faith and repentance is not just how you come into the Christian life. It's how you progress in the Christian life. I heard one preacher say that faith and repentance are like pedals on a bicycle. Like that's how we move forward in the Christian faith. Faith, repentance, faith, repentance, faith, repentance. But he says, look, some of you have stopped putting your faith in God. You, you stopped trusting God for your ultimate source of security and satisfaction and, and significance. And, and not only are you sinning against God, you're not repenting of those sins. Like you say maybe you're repenting of those sins, but you're doing the same things over and over and over. And so he says, I'm having to come back and put the training wheels on your bicycle just to try to move you forward in the right direction again. And he says, not only is that an issue, but he says, I'm having to come back and instruct you again about these cleansing rites, about baptism, about the laying on the hands, which in this context, what he's talking about here is I'm having to remind you that you were created for mission. When you think about Jesus' baptism, Jesus came out of the waters and the Holy Spirit descended on him, and this was an initiation into his public ministry. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. Jesus says, like in Acts 1, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to empower you for mission, to be my witnesses, to make disciples. And when you look in the book of Acts, anytime they would send someone out for mission, they would lay their hands on them. And so what he's saying is, look, if some of you, you're like, like you're not even sharing your faith. Like, that's like Christianity one-on-one. Like, tell people the good news about Jesus. Like, live on mission. Make disciples realize that you have received the Holy Spirit, not just to make you feel warm and fuzzy, but to propel you forward in the mission of God. And then he says, finally, I'm having to teach you all over again about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. I'm having to remind you that one day you're going to die. That one day you're going to draw your last breath here on earth and, and, and everyone, listen, everyone in this room will stand before God and give an account for how you spent your time here on earth. And so as he goes on to say in Hebrews, I have to remind you again, don't live for this city, but seek the city that is to come. These are elementary teachings. Elementary teachings, he's saying. Soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. So some of you need to come to the conference. You have no idea. Uh, eschatology, the end of times. Like, man, these are basic things. This is the ABCs of Christian faith that we are to build on so that we can mature in Christ. You know, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but if my kids need help with their math homework, they do not come to me. And that is because I did not pay attention in school. I was dull of hearing. Uh, I remember going to my ninth grade counselor and saying, what's the least I can do and graduate? And my high school transcript reflects that. Mr. Shepard uh, is in here somewhere. I thought he was. There you are in the back. Yeah, sent me his transcript. You can vouch for that. Not great, uh, especially in math. Like, I never made above a D in my math classes. And I took, like, as, like, what's the least math I can do and graduate kind of thing, right? Not, like, taking, like, trig and calculus and all that kind of stuff. And so because I became dull of hearing... Right? Like, like, here's the thing. I cannot teach my kids. In fact, they can teach me. My fourth and fifth grader can teach me more than I can teach them. And as embarrassing as that is, the preacher says, that's the way it is for some of you spiritually speaking. He, he says, some of you have become so dull of hearing, you stopped listening, you stopped applying the truth of the gospel to your life, and therefore you should be teachers, you should be able to do trig, you should be able to do calculus, but instead, you're having to learn elementary math all over again. You're having to go back to the basics, spiritually speaking. And I just want to stop right here and say this, it's important that you know, um, age is not the determining factor for how mature a Christian is. 
Do you realize that? Like, just because you're 65 years old doesn't mean you're a mature Christian. Like, that's the point he's trying to make here. He says, by this time, he's talking to people who probably are 65, 70 years old. He's like, you've been following Jesus for 20, 30 years, and you've not really grown up. Like, you're still needing the younger people in the church to teach you, to lead you, to guide you, to disciple you. And so he says in here, pay attention, focus, get serious about your own personal discipleship to Jesus. And then in verse 3, he says something I think is pretty scary. He says, let's move beyond all this elementary stuff. Let's grow. Let's mature. Verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. Which almost seems like maybe God won't permit it. Does it not to you? Like God permitting, you will grow. You will mature. What is that about? Well, here's what I think it's about. I think it's about the reality that God is so patient and he's so kind and he's so good that he will go through a lot of pain and a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to try. I mean, he'll give his own son up, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the gospel. He'll do whatever he can to try to get you to turn from your sin and to trust him and to be obedient to him. But it is clear in Scripture, there comes a time where God will eventually say, okay, you can just have whatever it is that you feel like you need, and then he lets you chase after that thing. There comes a time where the Bible is clear, God, he'll start, he'll say, repent, repent, stop, come back, come back. And every time you say no, the quieter his voice will become, to where eventually you will not even be able to hear. Romans chapter 1, I won't have you turn there, but go read that on your own later. Romans 1, verse 18 through 32. It says that the wrath of God is revealed against those who basically, they, they choose a lie over the truth. They continue to choose this lie over the truth. And what God's wrath looks like, according to Romans 1, think about this. A lot of us, when we think of God's wrath, like if he's mad at you, what we think is that he's going to like give you cancer or like cause you to have a miscarriage or kill your parent or like make you like, you know, someone T-bone you or paralyze you or like, we're like, oh, that's the wrath of God. But according to Romans 1, that's not what the wrath of God looks like. The wrath of God looks like God letting you chase after this thing that you are convinced is better than Jesus until eventually that thing destroys you. The wrath of God is God eventually saying, I'm just going to give you what you keep saying that you want, that you think is better than me. Rather than him forcing you to do what he says. He says, look, clearly you don't want to listen. You don't want to follow. You don't want to repent. I'm just going to give you what you think you need the most. And that thing eventually drives you into the ground. And so I just want to say today, like, that should create some fear in all of us. In fact, I would say, like, if that doesn't create a little bit of fear in you, you should definitely be afraid. Because what that means is somehow your heart is becoming dull, it's becoming hard, it's becoming flippant, it's becoming arrogant, it's becoming to this place where you're like, I know I'm good no matter what because I prayed a prayer whenever I was dot, dot, dot. And this text will not let you do that. This is a scary passage, and it gets even scarier because the preacher goes on, and and, and in verse 4 he says, listen to this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Why? Because eventually you come to a place where you don't even want repentance anymore. 
Your heart is so hard, you don't even want Jesus anymore. You don't hear from Jesus anymore. Two, they're lost. These are people who are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting to him public disgrace. What he means by that is that, that, that if you hear the gospel, like you're hearing the gospel week in and week out, and you turn away from Jesus, it's like you basically say, I don't care if you're back up on that cross. It means nothing to me. You mean nothing to me. That's what he's basically saying here. And then listen to this, this, this metaphor he gives. He says this, verse 7, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless. And it's in danger of being cursed. And in the end, it will be what? It will be burned. Now, this is, in my opinion, the most controversial passage of Scripture in all of the New Testament. And the question that arises when people read this is this. Is the preacher saying that a Christian can lose their salvation? That's the big question. Is the preacher saying here, that a Christian can lose their salvation. And from my perspective, from what I can see in the best I've studied, no, he is not. No, he's not saying that. And there are three reasons why I would say I don't believe that's what he's getting at here. And the first reason is because of what he just said in verse 7 and 8, which is meant to explain what he just said in 4 through 6. And if you notice, he says in here, look, there are two types of fields. There's two types of people. There's not three, there's only two. Both of the fields receive the rain, and the rain he's talking about here is what he just said. These blessings, uh, they've been enlightened, so they know the truth. They, they've, they've shared in some experiences with the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the goodness of God's Word. They've experienced God's power in, in, in some way, so they, they've received the rain. These fields have, but notice is there's one of two fields. He says, one field produces fruit. There's life. There's salvation. But the other field, and notice this. Because it doesn't produce fruit. It looks like it. These little shoots coming from the ground. You're like, oh, that's going to be fruit. But as it begins to grow, you notice it's not fruit at all. It's thorns and it's thistles. There's not a third field. There's not a field that, hey, at one time this produced fruit. At one time there was life. At one time there was salvation. And then all the fruit died. That's not it. Either it received the rain and it produced fruit. There was salvation. There was life. Or it received the rain and there was thorns and there were thistles. There was never life to begin with. There was never salvation to begin with. You understand the difference? Not that it was once there and then gone. So that's one reason I don't believe he's saying you can lose your salvation. Another reason is because of what he goes on to say in verse 9. If you look with me, he says, I am convinced. So he's talking again to his church. He says, some of you guys aren't doing really good, but look, here's the deal. I'm assuming the best. I am convinced better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. What is the better things he's talking about? Well, he's saying these better things that always accompany salvation. In verse 10 and verse 12, he's saying it's things like love, and diligence, and faith, and patience. He says these things always come with salvation, which calls you, he says in verse 12, to endure to the end. And so he's saying, look, some of you, aren't, some of you are struggling, you're not growing, but I'm going to believe the best that you have truly been saved, and if you have been saved, you will persevere till the end. And so that's another reason I don't believe he's saying you can lose your salvation. But then a third and final reason is, if he's saying right here you can lose your salvation, then he contradicts everything else he says in the book of Hebrews. And I would say everything else is said in the New Testament. But here's just a couple things he says in Hebrews. I'll read them to you quickly. Think about this. Hebrews 3.14, he says, We have become 
partakers of Christ. Not we might become partakers of Christ or uh, we might, you know, no, no, we have become partakers of Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the end. So how do you know if you have truly been saved? Again, you will persevere till the end. Hebrews 10, 14, last one I'll read from Hebrews. He says this, for by one sacrifice, he's talking about Jesus, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you realize right now, Jesus is in the process, if you've received the Holy Spirit, of trying to make you holy. Like he's, he, he's trying to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. Like where you sit right now, where I stand right now, we are all imperfect people. We all still struggle with sin and imperfections. But in the eyes of God, even though we are imperfect on a ground level, and if you don't think you're imperfect, like ask your spouse. Your spouse will quickly remind you you're imperfect, right? Though we are imperfect on a ground level from a heavenly perspective, we look perfect in the eyes of God right now. Perfect. Like what is true of Jesus is true of us. If you have trusted in Christ, you are forgiven, you are redeemed, you are accepted, you are loved. And, and the writer of Hebrews says here in chapter 10, verse 14, there is nothing that can ever change that. Nothing. That's not going away. No matter whether you got it right or didn't get it right today. And so the question is, a lot of all that is, well, if the, if the preacher is not saying you can lose your salvation, what is he saying? And to me, this is actually far scarier. Because, though I don't believe he's saying that it's possible for a Christian to fall away, what I do believe he's saying is it's possible for you to think, a, think that you're a Christian when in fact you're actually not a Christian. What he's saying is, I think it's very possible for us to get caught up in a wave of something that kind of resembles Christianity, but in the end, we realize it wasn't it at all. And if you're like, I mean, is there anywhere we see that in the Bible? Yeah. One of the greatest examples is Judas of Iscariot. Chosen by Jesus to be one of his personal 12 disciples. Can you imagine walking with Jesus every day for three years, hearing the teachings of Jesus, hugging Jesus, seeing the miracles of Jesus? Judas himself performed miracles in the name of Jesus. He tasted the goodness of God's word. He experienced the power. He shared in some of that Holy Spirit power. And yet at the end of his life, what happened? He drifted into destruction. And Jesus tried to warn every one of us of this. In Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. To put that in the religious South language, not everyone who prayed the sinner's prayer will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a sobering, sobering passage. Because you know what this tells me? There are pastors who are going to spend eternity in hell. 
There are miracle workers who are going to spend an eternity in hell. There are good old boys and good old gals who are members of a church who claim to be Christians who are going to spend eternity in hell. (laughs) And so the question I think we should be asking is, well, my God, how do I know if I'm saved? And first off, I would just say, if that is the question you're asking, that's a really good sign. How do I know if I'm saved? Because people who aren't saved don't care. They're not asking that question. How do I know if I'm a genuine Christian? I mean, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he came and lived a perfect sinless life that I could never live and died a death on a cross I deserve to die and that he rose from the dead. Well, belief is good, but James is clear in James 2.19. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So honestly, like, and I, and I say this with, with tenderness, like, guys, honestly, like, some of us don't even tremble. Like, we're not even in awe of God. We don't have any reverence or respect for God. So in some ways, like, the demons are better than where some of us are right now. The demons believe and tremble. So how do we know if we are truly saved? I cannot think of a question more important to answer today. And I'm just going to let Jesus answer it for me. In Matthew chapter 7, I want you to look at this with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 7. Right before Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He says this. This is his Sermon on the Mount. Keep in mind, this is a sermon like what I'm doing right now. It's just all flowing one into another. Right before he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who prays a sinner's prayer will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he says. Verse 17. How can you know? How can I know? How can I know if I'm truly saved? Matthew 7, 17. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. There's two fields. There's one of two fields. There's a field that produces fruit. That's proven it's saved. And then there's thorns and thistles. And then he goes on, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But then look at this. He ends his whole sermon this way, Matthew 7, 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into, what's the word? Practice. Is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain came down. And guys, listen, the rain is going to come down. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. They clearly had trusted their lives with Jesus, and we know that because they were seeking to do the will of Jesus. They were applying what they were learning. But then verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, that person is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. God, man, there's so many of us, maybe from the day, we're building this life. Oh, man. And it's on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. And then Jesus just walked off the stage. That's how he ends his sermon. Can you imagine me ending a sermon that way? 
Here's what Jesus just said. Imagine this is Jesus in front of you. So there are some of you in here this morning, I could tell you paid attention. You listened well. And you're going to apply this teaching. I will see you in heaven. There are others of you, once again today, the teaching went in one ear and out the other. And you're going to go to hell. God bless. Y'all have a good Sunday. Is that what it's saying or am I making that up? The storm's coming and it's going to reveal for some of you that you never really had faith. And how do we know? Because you never applied what you were learning to your life. And because of this, the writer in Hebrews, the preacher in Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 12, you don't have to turn back there. He ends the whole teaching and he's just taking a line from Jesus. And here's what he says to his church because he loves them so much. He says, do not become lazy. This is Hebrews 6, verse 12. Do not become lazy. Laziness is one of the great enemies to spirituality. Do not become lazy, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Man, I was thinking this past week about the story of Israel. I'm almost done, but think about the story of Israel. They're in slavery for 400 years they cry out to God. It's what we usually do. We're flippant until all of a sudden the storms come. Then we cry out to God. They cry out to God. They're in slavery. God in his grace raises up Moses through Moses. He delivers these people out of slavery. They come to the Red Sea. Here they are between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army who's trying to kill them. But where there is no way, God makes a way. He parts the Red Sea. They go through the Red Sea. The Egyptian army follows. He, God crushes the Egyptian army with the Red Sea. And now think about this. They are just a two-week journey away from everything God had promised them, a Land flown with milk and honey, which apparently was a really cool thing back then. And so they send out these spies, 12 spies, to go look at the land. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, come back and said, the land is beautiful and it's ours. Let's go get it. God promised it. And the other 10 spies said, no, there's giants over there, which actually the scripture says they only thought they were giants in their own eyes. So it was a way bigger threat to them than what it actually was. And then in this crazy line, you can go read this for your own later. The Israelites begin to complain because things got hard, things got difficult. It wasn't as easy as they thought it was going to be. And some of them said, quote, let's go back to Egypt. Think about that. That's where they were in slaves for 400 years. Let's go back to Egypt so we can eat some of the soup that had leeks and onions in it. Boy, it's getting hard. This is getting difficult. Do you remember that soup? You remember that soup that had the leeks and onions in it? Oh, man. Like, let's see if we can swim across that sea that God just parted. Let's trade the milk and honey for the leeks and the onions, even if it means we end up in slavery all over again. And as crazy as that seems, guys, the preacher says, look, if it can happen to Israel, it can happen to you, and it can happen to me. So close to receiving what God has promised you. And it gets a little bit hard, a little bit difficult, and you turn and you go the other way, back into slavery. And I just want to say this. If 30 years from now this becomes true of Jared Pickney, like if I walk away from the faith, if I decide to say, you know, I don't want to be faithful to my wife anymore. Like I want to just do whatever my desires. You know, I just want to pursue my desires. If I like leave my wife, if I decide, like, I want to start pursuing the American dream at all costs, like, if I, 
if I do all that, please hear me, it's not because I lost my salvation. It's because I never had it. And this whole thing was just about my ego or me making money or, or whatever else it may be. None of us are excused from this, not even me. But this doesn't have to be our story. Some of you right now, man, and I've seen it this week, some of you, you're so tempted. I know that sin looks good. I know the sex looks good, the porn looks good, the getting the approval from your friends looks good, the instant gratification looks good, the, the promotion looks good, the money looks good, the car looks good, all the stuff looks good, and, and we're chasing after it. And the writer of Hebrews says, man, don't be deceived. Jesus is better than that. He's better than that. He's better than your career. He's better than your money. He's better than your comfort. He's better than your spouse. Your spouse is going to die. If your spouse becomes your God and you bury your spouse, what's going to happen? Same is true of your kids. He's better than your kids. He created your kids. He gave you the kids. The maker is always better than the thing that was made. Jesus is better. So he says, don't get flippant. Don't, just because things are hard, don't turn back. Don't listen to me very carefully. Don't trade eternal gratification for instant gratification. Keep fighting. Keep pursuing so that you can, here's the promise again in verse 12, inherit what God has promised you in Christ. With that in mind, I'm going to invite the band to come up, but don't shuffle around because here's what I, I want you to realize as the band's coming up. Again, remember that the teacher is trying to instill in us a healthy fear. The goal is not to leave here and be like, oh my gosh, like every night just laying in bed being like, am I in, am I out, am I in, am I out, am I saved, am I not saved? Like, like that's not the goal. The goal is, though, for this creates some healthy fear in you that drives you to Jesus where you can find assurance for your salvation. You know, I have three kids, and all of my kids are scared to play in the street. All three of them. And I don't mean they're scared as in like they're laying in bed at night being like, oh, God, there's the street out there. You know, like, it's not like that. But it is the kind of fear that keeps them from playing in traffic. And I'm glad they're afraid of playing in traffic because we live at the corner of 7th and Main. And because they're afraid of playing in traffic, I have really good memories with my kids up to this point. Last night, Megan and I got to go, or yesterday, got to go to the ASU Museum because our daughter's art was on display there. And we're so proud of her getting to go and taking pictures with her and, you know, being the embarrassing parents, whatever. And got to play basketball with my son, Wyatt, yesterday. Beautiful day. Got to play Mario Kart with Moses. That was great until he got mad because he's awful. <clears throat> and because of this healthy fear they have, Lord willing, willing, they're going to be home when I get home today. And tomorrow I'm going to coach Wyatt's soccer team. And this week I'm going to probably play Legos or Duplos with Moses. At some point I'm going to sit down and I'm going to listen to Nora talk about her day. For a long time, with lots of details. My point is, because of their fear, I get to have a relationship with them, and I get to watch them grow and mature and experience life to the fullest, hopefully one day. And that's what this is all about. Yeah, it's about growing, it's about maturing, but ultimately it's about a relationship with God, the source of all that is good and beautiful and true. And so I hope that you don't, I hope that you don't leave here and be like, well, 
just going to try harder to be better. That's the, what was your sermon about? Just trying harder to be better. Like, this is not a sermon. Please hear me. I'm almost done. This is not a sermon about perfection. Nobody in here is perfect. This is not a sermon about perfection, but it is a sermon about progress. You should be growing. You should be maturing. You should be becoming more like Christ. Your spouse should be able to look at you. I was talking to Megan about this last night. She should be able to say, like, you're, you're, you're kinder than you used to be. You're more gentle than you used to be. You're more patient than you used to be. You have more joy than you used to be. You're more loving than you used to be. You're more bold than you used to be. That should be happening. And, and here's the way that we get there. I, I, I love this. I wasn't even going to share this. And then the Lord, I felt just right before I left this morning, was like, Jared, you got to share this or people's going to leave in shame today. Jesus tells us in John 15, he says, if you want to bear fruit, you don't sit there and try harder to be better. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you will abide in me, if you will abide in my love, he says, you will bear much fruit. You will be that land that bears fruit. And so please don't leave here today and be like, okay, I'm going to do it, man. I'm going to do it. I'm going to stop looking at porn. I'm going to treat my wife better. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to share the gospel. Like, like, more than anything, here's the call, the time we have left. It is the root yourself in the love of Christ. No matter who you are or what you've done today, God loves you. The fact that you heard this message today, once again, is the fact that he's trying to pursue you. So run to him. Root yourself in his love. And from that, we will be a people who produce fruit. Let's stand together. I want to pray for us. We'll sing a couple more songs, take communion, and be dismissed. Father, I do thank you so much for each person who is here. I thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, for these warnings that are not coming to us like a probation officer or an angry dad that we can't please because we can't hit 10 out of 10 free throws or whatever else it may be. Like, like you are a loving and gracious and compa- compassionate Father. And we know this warning was given to us this morning because you want us to have a deep relationship with you, because you have so much more for us. God, there are some of us maybe in here today in the words of C.S. Lewis who are settling for those mud pies when there is a vacation at sea. There is eternal gratification. And I pray that there will be nobody here that leaves deceived, that everybody here will leave convinced of your love and through your kindness it will lead to repentance that draws us back to you and that we will bear much fruit that glorifies you, God, that allows others to taste and see how good you really are. And it's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen.